Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another episode of No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I've been interviewing fascinating and talented people from all walks of life for the past 20 years as an unscripted television producer, and before that, as a small-town sports reporter. Each episode, I talk to extraordinary individuals working in reality television, documentaries, true crime, game shows, and much more. Now, if you enjoy No Script, No Problem, please subscribe and rate the show with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Bleave.com and at Bleave Podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Bleave at Bleave.com. All right, let's get started. Today, my guest is an award-winning creator, writer, executive producer, showrunner of scripted and unscripted television and film, as well as an author and a professor. She does it all. Her credits include Hip Hop, The Songs That Shook America, Odd Mom Out, Donnie, exclamation point, The Rachel Zoe Project, which is where I met her, Small Town Security, and her latest series, Generation Hustle, which she serves as the showrunner, is streaming right now. Everybody needs to watch it on HBO Max. Please welcome Angie Day. Angie, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Generation Hustle, 10 episodes, documentary series on HBO Max for Jigsaw. I loved the first two episodes. It's right up my alley. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about Generation Hustle? Just break it down for us, what it is and why everybody should watch. Sure, yeah. Generation Hustle, it's 10 one-hour documentaries or 45 minutes to an hour documentaries. And each one tells a story of one young, you know, con artist, hustler, master of deception. Um, and it's told by the people who lived it. The way that I think of it as, a, as someone who was there from the beginning is a series that's about con artists, but that isn't really using the language of true crime. It's almost like it should feel like reading a spread in Vanity Fair magazine. Um, and I think it's called Generation Hustle because the word hustle has both a positive and a negative connotation. And I think to me, the entire series is really about the American dream gone wrong in a lot of instances. And why people should watch it, I think it's 10 really watchable episodes, but they're also kind of insightful about what it means to kind of take things too far, what it means to be a human. And I think for me, the thing I walked away with is like, we're living in this era where of kind of truthiness, right? And everyone thinks that they're too smart to be conned. But I think if you watch the series, you realize it could happen to any of us. I agree 1 million percent. And I, what I liked about even just the first two episodes is that, you know, I compared, you know, Jigsaw did the documentary on Theranos, the inventor. And I look at, you know, WeWork. I look at even Nexium, right? Which is a cult. Mm -hmm. There is this whole thing about people buying into something that's quote unquote bigger than themselves right now, right? And I think that a documentary series like Generation Hustle sends out a warning signal. As the showrunner who did 10 stories, do you feel like you learned, you know, like that there, we need to be a little bit more skeptical about people selling, you know, these things that are so grandiose? Well, I mean, I think people will walk away being like, yeah, you got to do your due diligence. But it's funny. I feel like I've even been tricked since watching it just in very small ways. But 
there's so much misinformation out there and so much of about, about what we do right now is image, you know? And I think that Instagram in a lot of ways is a lie. It's an image. It's what you're putting out there. It's your brand, but how much is that really you? And so if you're buying into everyone else's images of themselves, um, there, it's not that big of a step to go from that to, you know, being conned to believe that someone has an authority in an area where they don't have an authority or that they're kind of worthy of your um, respect. And I also think too, one of the things that we hit on in the series is that there's, you know, there's at least in a few instances in the series, these are people who had incredible abilities, incredible charm, intelligence, all of that. And, you know, put it to nefarious purposes, but it's hard not to walk away thinking, what if they'd applied that skill for good? Because in a lot of ways, many of them represented that kind of grit that we always talk about when we talk about the American dream. And that's what really interested me too. I think that I've worked in so many different genres and to me, it's really all about storytelling and kind of representing all the different ways in which we are human. Um, and I think that in, we're, with each of these episodes, hearing sometimes from the con artists themselves um, and always from the victims really paints a picture of what it's like to be kind of immersed in things that you believe are true that aren't and how desperately sometimes people want things to be true. I feel like we really want to believe, especially as Americans, I think we like, we like to believe in people. We like to believe in ambition. And, you know, sometimes that gets the better of us. I agree that we all kind of want to believe in something. Um, I noticed, you know, this is HBO Max. It's a younger audience. So these people who are getting scammed, a lot of times we're, we're younger. Do you feel like the, the younger generation, like you mentioned, Instagram, are they a little bit more susceptible to jumping on board to a, a con or a scam? I mean, I think that's a good question, but I would say, you know, we, were, we really set out to do a show about hustling and cons in the era of Instagram. So in the, just by nature, perhaps being more involved in social media, maybe. But I honestly, I think that it's all of us. It's part of our wiring. You know, you want to believe in people and you want to, you want to believe the best in people. You'd think actually now everyone's, it feels like everyone's cynical about everything, but there's also a piece of it. But that's what's also really sweet. I think there's, so there's five different directors on the series who are amazing. And it sort of began with a director named Jan Motzkin, who had um, pitched a documentary about a con to Jigsaw. And he had worked with them a lot. And so um, he's also an executive producer on the project. And then um, I brought in four additional directors, Martha Shane, Yemisee Brooks, George Plamondon, and Jeremiah Crowell. And each of them, um, some of this was due to COVID, but each of them took on two episodes. And so what was really great too is to be able to take a story like Anna Delvey and say, who, whose point of view on this story, which director would be really great to see do this? And that was Martha Shane, who had directed a movie called Narrowsburg um, about a fraudulent film festival. But I think that that was really a fun piece of this too. And I, and I believe also, you know, you mentioned Hip Hop, The Songs That Shook America, which was a really a joy to run that show. And that was with the directors, Eric Parker and One Nine, who were also showrunners with me. But anyway, there are these incredible directors. And, I, and one of the things that I noticed on that series was, you know, if you had an episode, we're telling the story behind one song that really impacted, um, you know, in a lot of ways, American history. But the with each of those episodes, you're figuring out who should we interview. And what I found was that the episodes where we interviewed more people, maybe 12, uh, 
didn't there they were amazing but like the ones that really got to me it was sort of six people just telling you their story so deeply and that you know I credit to Eric and one nine who were so targeted in their approach but I think when we started this series that was something that we really wanted to do as well which is how do we not have experts telling you what you're supposed to think about it, other people analyzing it. Like, how do we find six people who live this experience and tell it that way? And I think in that way as well, you know, you mentioned having worked in scripted and in scripted, you talk about breaking a story, which is, you know, we know that this is going to be the episode about, you know, a doorman strike and how do we break this story? What's the first scene? What's the second scene? And I think there was a lot of similarity here because if you take a story like, you know, the 23 lives of Jeremy Wilson, who's someone who had had 23 different identities and had crossed the country, had countless victims. You can't really tell that story from the beginning. So what we would do with each one is say, OK, who who are the storytellers that we want for this episode? And then how do we tell the whole story using the people that we have? And I think that that as you watch it in terms of how it's made, I think that that's a big part of it as well is really trying to make it as personal as possible um, and about the lived experience versus, you know, I call it, you know, first person, first person storytelling versus third person. Right. And I think that that's something that I just really love from like the earliest days of like piloting made, which was a long time ago, but that show taught me so many things. That was like an MTV life makeover show for kids where they were, you know, I'm a cheerleader, but I really, or I'm a drama geek, but I really want to be a cheerleader. And it was, you know, them trying to kind of achieve their dreams. And I think um, trying to take something and make it as personal as possible was a big part of it. I think a lot, another big part of this series and one of the reasons why, you know, I say it's a fun watch is I'm really interested in kind of genre busting where you're kind of taking different genres and combining them. And there's a tendency where people will say, ah, you know, everything you could ever see has been made before. And it's like, we are not even close to that. There's so many creative ways to tell a story. And I think one of the kind of central things for Jan and I from the beginning was, you know, how do you tell a crime story without using any of the language of crime? Um, I even remember with the directors, I would say, if you really want to use a drone, use a drone. But if you weren't using a drone, what would you do? Because I feel like there's also like, there's these, things that are supposed to be signals to the audience, whether that's musical or visual, that like you're inside of a certain genre. And those are exactly the kind of conventions that I think are so fun to try to overturn and to try to just evolve. And I think that that was one of the most rewarding things about this series too, especially in a pandemic, which that's, I, I'm happy to talk about, but it was, a, it, we shot all these this summer. It was a crazy experience. I, I get what you're saying in terms of those very typical ominous drone shots and so for me, it was the storytelling, and I applaud you for getting someone like Ian Beck, who was the con artist, you know, the scammer. Anytime you can get that critical person, that, you know, that to me, that that's a coup as a storyteller to be able to get that critical person who can will will admit to a certain extent what, what they've done and be able to tell that story. I mean, one of my issues with something like the Varsity Blues documentary which i don't know if you saw on netflix but you know it's almost all recreations of course Lori laughlin's not gonna talk about you know what she did wrong and the guy who's at the center of the scandal you know he's not talking because he you know his litigation's still going but it's pretty much almost no one who was involved in the entire process the entire case they had like one person who was involved was talking 
And so it was all, you know, Matthew Modine acting and they had the recordings, but that was pretty much it. And so it felt more like a movie. And I, my whole take was like, you might as well just do a movie. I watch that and my heart just goes out to people because I know sometimes too, you have a documentary and everyone's really excited to make it. And then all of a sudden people are going to participate, start to clamp down. And then you have to like, you know, pivot. And so I, I see that and I just see, oh, that must have been really, frankly, impossible to, to end up booking. But I do think our, you know, our directors got so creative on this too. Like for example, the fourth episode is Anna Delvey takes Manhattan and Anna Delvey's life rights are bought up by everybody. So she can't, even if she wants to sit down for an interview, she can't, but she was able to, um, our director corresponded with her in prison and she was able to um, submit her drawings. So she submitted drawings that kind of uh, correlated with every step of her story and they're captioned and it's really beautiful, but it's also just such a creative way to um, involve her. There's another one called Frat Boy Ponzi. That's about Syed Arbab who um, created a hedge fund while he was in college and he's involved in that story as well. And then I would urge anyone that there's an episode that uh, Yemisee Brooks directed called A Scam with a Beat, which is about the a scam rapper, TJX6, who was happy to talk about what it is that he uh, does, which that one is, it's kind of mind blowing. It was mind blowing for us as well. But I do think that, yeah, getting that, that personal point of view is really important. And also to your point with recreations, and it's not that I have problems with drones, like I watch all those shows, but it's sort of like, how do you inch this into the next space? And I think for us, essentially what had happened, if I can geek out on production for a second, but we were set up to basically prep five, then shoot five and then prep five more episodes and then shoot five more episodes, but we were supposed to start shooting in March. Um, and so we had to shut down and to kind of keep the series going, we signed another uh, episode to each director and we became prep 10 and shoot 10. So we shot them all this past summer and then we edited all 10 at the same time and there wasn't a pilot. So I think that, you know, the task at hand was how do we take all these directors visions and also kind of cross pollinate the ideas so that we're going to end up with a series, which is really thrilling to do. And the directors were so collaborative with that. But I think one of the choices that we had to make early on was, you know, often everyone, of course, with every series, you have a style guide, you know, which, which I'd done in, uh, you know, February or whatever, before we're going to shoot. And Jan and I talked about all of that uh, frequently, but once you realize that you're going to be shooting a lot of your series more than half, I think remotely, it becomes a question of like, what has to, what has to be continuous and where do we um, consistent and where do we let people just have fun? And I think for us, we never wanted the recreations to be literal. We really wanted to be about the grandiose visions in people's minds, but what each director did with that is very different, which I think is one of the things that makes the series fun as well. Because for example, in the 23 lives of Jeremy Wilson, Jeremy Wilson was a serial imposter and he did that by you know, he would fake identities. He was kind of copy pasting all sorts of things. And so the director, Jeremiah Crowell, with that episode, wanted to do um, collage animation as his way of um, doing recreations because the collage animation kind of mirrored what Jeremy Wilson did in his crime. So that one is just this crazy animated ride that is, you know, really amazing. And I think for TJX6, who's a scam artist who, you know, plays with the blurred line between what's real and what's not real, 
the director, Yemisee Brooks, decided to do like a surrealistic take visually on that so that, you know, he might be in it in one shot, he might be, you know, walking across the frame, he passes a pole. And in the next, when he emerges from the other side, he's upside down hanging from the ceiling. Like it's very like what's up, what's down, what's true, what's not true, what's real, what's not real. But I think that that was, you know, that kind of freedom and credit to Jigsaw and HBO Max too, for being open to it. But that I think too, is what is part of what makes this series really special. It's like, you're not, you're not going to see the same thing every episode. <laughs> it's not even close. <laughs> I don't think we could have if we wanted to. You, I mean, it's still, even just watching those first two episodes, you still felt some level of continuity in terms of the style from those graphic, you know, the graphics felt similar. The interview style did feel similar. And it's not like, you know, when you watch one episode to the next, I felt like, oh my God, am I watching the same series? Like I well, felt and it's like- funny, like if if in February I could have just cut to this conversation and then like played it for everyone involved, because I think that that was always a question every single time was, you know, how is this going to feel like a series? How is this going to feel like a series? And saying, we've got this, we've got this, we've got this. But yes, yeah, so, so you're exactly right. We had an interview set up that was consistent across episodes. There was a really bold graphic vision that we felt could really tie it together. And then there was the tonal. It's funny because I think as a, especially coming as sort of a writer, as a novelist first, like people always talk about style and it'll be, you know, the lenses and the cameras and the, this, and this, that, and the other, but often people don't talk about the storytelling style and how important that is. And so I think Um, how much that sets an episode apart or a series apart is how do you tell that story? Like the series Don't Fuck With Cats, which I think is so amazing. What they did with storytelling was really groundbreaking and was so distinctive. And I think that, you know, here and having it be first person and and doing, having one storyteller, storytellers don't join the story until they're relevant to it, right? Because my biggest pet peeve is what I call interview soup which is like, here's a, here's a documentary and it's, you know, goes from topic to topic with the same contributors talking about every aspect of the topic. I'm much more interested in kind of the passing of the storytelling baton and that kind of storytelling tradition that draws you through um, the story. Interview soup. I love that. I, I'm going <laughs> to steal that. Yeah, I've never heard that before, but I love that. Let's talk about the style. I always have this debate pretty much every show that or, that I start, which is that, you know, are, are we having people talk direct to camera? Are we having people talk, you know, are we having the subjects talk <laughs> off camera? You know, I love, I, it, it's a fun debate. Yeah. It's also a frustrating debate, um, mm-hmm. but it goes to what you're talking about, right? Which is what mm-hmm. is the style of storytelling? Why are we having people look into the camera and what you did in those first two episodes, I, I saw, you know, like in the second episode, your subject, Ian Beck, you know, who is kind of the, the crux of the story in terms of he's the, the scammer, mm-hmm. the artist. He's talking he to the camera. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And his, the, the people being scammed are not. So, yeah. I assume that was a direct, that was a very specific choice. You want to talk about that? Yeah, so it's basically the the choice we made was only the con artists would go direct to camera, and then everyone else would be slightly off, but still pretty tight. Sometimes it gets so tight. Sometimes it's born of shooting remotely. Sometimes it gets so tight, it almost looks like they're looking directly through the lens, but the idea was that the con artist directly to the camera. And then also, when you have the the tighter eye line for the subjects, is actually in the wide, which also gives a real sense of world. I know like, you know, when you're pitching and scripted, it's all like, what's the world? What's the world of this show? What's the world that I'm gonna get into? And I think that that's very much 
how we viewed this series too. Like what's the world that each of these episodes represents, you know, so the party is over, which is about a kid, uh, Ian Beck, as you mentioned, who, when he was in high school, started throwing these EDM parties and uh, pretty soon he had people investing in his EDM parties. And he was kind of well-known throughout all of Connecticut for, he was just, he was on all these lists, all this press, like this young, like Munderkin who turned out had gotten in over his head and had been losing money hand over fist, but was too afraid to admit it. Essentially. I'm oversimplifying the story to watch the episode and then you can debate what was really going on. But, but anyway, you know, that's the world of EDM. Basically we wanted each episode to have its own distinct world that was really represented and part of having a wider frame on, you know, like if you have, if the wide is off camera, I find you don't really use it as much. If the eyeline's off camera, it's kind of like becomes your cutaway versus I think it could be much more intentional when the tighter eyeline is with the wide and you're really getting a sense of the world each time that you're seeing these people uh, being interviewed, because you tend to want to use that when their eyelines tighter the camera more. Um, And then the other thing we did too, you know, talking about consistency was um, musically, we, every episode had its own sound. And that's another place too, where I, I love music so much. And I think that was the other piece of this that was really intentional, which is what's the sound of each episode that represents that world. And how do we make sure that what we're not doing is, you know, doing using crime music? How do we tell crime stories without crime music? Of course, you always need like your suspenseful moments, but there's so many different ways to draw out suspense. And what we did too, which was um, we had an amazing music supervisor who I'd worked with previously on a scripted series named Joe Rudge, who's awesome, but basically we did we did score it all with library music, but you know Warner has a million tracks. So what we did was we determined before we were shooting what's the sound of this episode, um, what are the tracks that are working, so that we could then pull music. So that when the editor's starting, they've got a bin full of music that the director has sort of already decided is kind of the sound of this. And of course, you have to troubleshoot it, but but it's just like you know, there's a feeling in the Ian Bick episode, the party's over. It's a little bit of like a rave. You're writing that kind of ramp up high of some of that music. And I think that that's exactly what we kind of had hoped to do across the series. Do you feel like because you come from that scripted world and you're a writer, you have to have every detail, you know, even though it's an unscripted show, you have to have every detail down before the cameras ever roll. I don't feel that way. No, I, I love, like, I think that the magic of unscripted is when you're surprised, but I'm a huge planner know what your plan is and then deviate when things do, you know, like, I think um, there's nothing more painful than someone trying to stick to an outline when that's not what's really happening. (laughs) That makes for some terrible television. But I do think that, for example, if you want to tell a story non-linearly, then you have to know, for example, there's another episode about Anthony Gignac, who was the fake Saudi prince. And in that, his brother is involved in the telling of that story, which is really amazing. But he's another one who had been playing this, been pretending to be a Saudi prince for, you know, over 20 years. So what we did on that was figure out how, what's the order of telling this story and, and which of these people that we're interviewing should really walk us through his history as they discovered it. You know, so it turns out there was an investigator who, you know, had taken in Anthony for something. And then he was the one who sort of uncovered what had happened in his past. But by determining what those moments are, it allows you to actually go more in depth with your interview subjects. But it's funny, like I've done, I call them misfixit gigs. 
well, I've done a fair amount in my career of misfixit gigs, which is like, um, so we shot a bunch of stuff and nothing's working. <laughs> what do we do? And then nope. I come in to try to, to basically reverse engineer a show. Every time I, I'm brought in on one of those, it's like, yeah, well, you know, it's a team that doesn't do paper. And I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm, I come at this as like, you know, a nerdy student who loves lists and planning. But I think that the, what I love about what I do as a showrunner, in particular on these last few shows, working with directors is that collaboration. Like if I'm doing something on my own, then it's sort of about what's my vision and how do I make it? And then also how do I make it when everything goes wrong, right? Because that's usually what it is. Um, with directors, it's kind of like, where are you trying to go and how can I help you get there? And I think that one of the things that makes me love what I do is that I don't see one way of doing things, but rather there's so many different ways to tackle television, so many ways to tackle a story. And the only difference is that I don't want to shoot and then figure it out. I like to kind of think it through with the elements that I have so that I'm prepared. And then once we have shot, then of course, then you're back into problem solving again, which is kind of, that was a revelation I had really early on in my career. My, I majored in creative writing and dance and then made the obvious leap into finance uh, for a little while. And then I quit that to work on a friend's movie. Um, and then my film school is making a really terrible short film. Um, but I think I had this idea, um, which actually it was a bad short film, but the relationships have lasted forever. I'm actually married to the DP of my <laughs> short film. Wow. But um, I know, uh, but no, we're still a pretty tight group of people. But anyway, I remember like when I headed into it, I'm like, oh, you know, what, what directing is or what, you know, making something is, is like, what's my vision? What are the blocks? And then how do I make it? And, and then I realized that it's actually more akin to like, what's my vision? Then you gather all the essential blocks to make it. And then you let like a dog in the room or a unruly toddler who, you know, like, chews up one block, throws one out the window, steals another, like, and then you have what's left. And the job is, how do I make something as good or better with what's left? And so it takes a lot of flexible thinking. But I think for me as a showrunner, once I realized that, like, my entire job is not, I think it says what's key to enjoying showrunning, is that you don't look at it, like, nothing ever goes wrong when you're showrunning, because that's the whole job is that everything is, everything is going wrong, right? So your whole job yes. is to, yeah. your whole job everything is to wake up wrong. and say, yeah. So, you, so if you, if you get upset by surprises, it's not such a good job for you versus like, I feel like all that I do is I wake up every day. Okay. What are the issues on my desk today and how can we solve them creatively? And often when you have that open-mindedness, some of the biggest problems become, can, can create something amazing because wait, I have to make it without like my major block. Well then what is it that I can do instead? And that's where the fun is. So in answer to your question like scripted is actually, even when I've done scripted, I love a little bit of improvisation because I think you can feel kind of the grooves of a scene. But I think when it comes to unscripted, it's more I like to plan. There's things you can think of in advance. Think of them in advance, you know, kind of know what it is as you're going for and then adjust as you have to. But that's that to me is where the fun of it is. And I had so much fun with, you know, these directors. Like there's, there's helping them problem solve story issues or brainstorming about all those different things. It's just one of the things that makes it so fun and so exciting. I think like the novelist in me loves unscripted because you're going into these places and people and human stories that you would never have kind of access to otherwise. So it's just, I don't know, it's very fun, very challenging, but very fun. And it is the fun 
of the unscripted world when you're just kind of ready, but yet things can go all kinds of different ways and you just kind of have to roll with it. And you hope you have good people around you and you've organized well enough that, you know, if something goes weird or wild or wacky, you know, everybody bonds together and you make it happen. It's also by having thought through so much beforehand, it allows you to kind of reach the solutions, I think, more quickly. But it's interesting, too, like having, you know, the first thing I piloted was made, which I mentioned, along with Lindsay Bannister and Mike Powers. People do not give made enough credit. Like made was kind of a groundbreaking series. Like, I feel like what MTV did with made what you and MTV did with made was really kind of a, a predecessor to a lot of those types of shows so kudos on that one well it was funny it was born of um i worked on mission makeover which was an old makeover show and and um as had Lindsay, and there was a guy an executive named bob cusbit who's like you know we want to do a life makeover for kids called made it's like all right so what, what would that look like and Lindsay and i having worked on a true makeover show you know you get like i i had to give a girl a, a makeover it was a, the target makeover and she was not psyched about that you know, or like, but she had to appear psyched on television, right? Or someone would like want to do this haircut and then they hated their haircut. And what would happen is, you know, they get their haircut and then they don't like their haircut. And then, you know, the host has to, it was Molly Sims at the time, you know, talk to them about it and make sure that everybody's happy before we shoot again. And so I think for Lindsay and I, the idea is like, this change is hard, but let's show it all. Let's show how hard it is to change. So it's sort of showing that kind of warts and all. But even having kids, I remember like having them do voice over their own shows. Like that was a, that seemed like a really big call at the time. No one had really done it. And I remember there was a lot of debating and I was like, well, can we, can we just try it? Cause it's probably the cheapest thing <laughs> you could experiment with. Right. It's just yep. people doing voiceover. Yeah. Um, but even that seemed crazy. But why I think it was such a good um, training ground for a lot of people, and certainly why it affected me a lot story-wise, is I think, like, made really... At the, in the beginning, we would shoot, like, 80 hours of footage for one episode. It was, like, one producer in the field with, like, a PD-150. And But you realize that people have to kind of earn their endings. So if someone... It was all about a kid and can they achieve their goal? And if they do, then you have to tell the story of how they achieved it. And if they don't, then you kind of have to tell the story of why they didn't or where it fell short. And so it's kind of this very clean way of realizing that everything is building towards the end. And it's not the end isn't just the end because that's where the story ends. You need to be building towards that moment the entire time. And it's sort of like a real consciousness in terms of the story and how the story is laid out. But yeah, that was a, that was a, that's another one where there's, you know, a lot of relationships from them. And MTV was really a great time to be at that time because, you know, as much as I don't really fit into the tidy lanes of, you know, scripted or unscripted or like even highbrow. And I always say I do all the brows. I do highbrow, lowbrow, everything in between, because again, to me, it's all storytelling and that's fun. But I think that um, one of the things that was really great about MTV at that time was you were really encouraged to, you know, work in a lot of genres. I had done a lot of pro social shows. I'd done shiny floor shows. I'd had a movie of the week that was in development. I had a scripted show in development. You know, I had, um, made and trailer fabulous which is a trailer makeover show so it was a really and in some ways i wish the whole business was more that way because i do think that there's just so much fun to be had and there's so much relevance 
you know, like everything is kept so separate in our business, but actually there's so much relevance, like one to the other in terms of craft and in terms of storytelling, in my opinion, I'm sure there are people who would disagree with me, but, but in my opinion, there is. I, I agree with you a hundred percent, but I, but I do think that there's a common feeling amongst many network executives as well as production company executives who feel like you need to find a lane, you find a niche and stay in that lane. And, and I'm very curious that you've been able to do shows like, you know, hip hop, the songs that made America, you do generation hustle, you write and create shows like Donnie, which is, you know, with Donnie Deutsch on, on USA, you, you write books, you know, like you have had such a diverse career and still do. How have you been able to do so much and, and kind of avoid that, you know, being pushed into one lane, pigeonholed the way so many producers are? I think for me, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I have avoided that necessarily. Some of it is um, like preparation meets opportunity. Odd Mom Out is probably the best example of that, which was created by Jill Cargman. Um, and it's funny because she's written many, many, many books. Uh, she's amazing. I've only published the one, but we, our first books came out at the same time. So we kind of knew each other there. And at the time I was an overall deal at Left Right uh, Productions and her name was on a board. And I was like, what is that Jill Cargman? I was like, I haven't seen her in the longest. And, and I was like, I want to work on whatever that is. Anyway, what started as an unscripted concept became scripted. And I had been, I'm sort of telling the story out of order, but, uh, but essentially I decided as a novelist and then working in unscripted, I'm like, actually, it's all kind of storytelling. I would love to kind of make the switch. I, you know, got samples together. I had to change my representation. It was a long kind of thing. And I had pitched a project and kind of learned the ropes in through that process. I didn't sell it, but, but I learned a lot. And uh, then I was on a deal at left, right. And, um, but it was sort of that moment when it became scripted where it's like preparation meets opportunity, right? I felt like I had a, such a better understanding of how to develop in that space. And Jill had a clear idea of what she wanted. Um, but I think that was being in the right place at the right time with the right kind of the right, the right background, I think. But outside of that, I've kind of, there was a time period where I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I need to make a decision. I need to go all one way or with the other. Cause there are people who have said to my face, if you ever want to work in scripted, you got to keep all that unscripted stuff. Don't do it anymore. And I'm like, but I like it. You know, uh, right. I'm sort of at a point, my, I'm at a point in my career where I'm like, I'm going to do the, the stuff I want to do and I'm going to do it, you know, like in my own way. And if people are cool with it, that's fine. And if they're not, that's fine too. And I think the, in answer to your question, cause I had sold another project as well that was scripted to YouTube, but, but, um, then they stopped doing scripted, which was a little bit of a heartbreaker. But anyway, I think the difference for me is that on the unscripted side, I feel like my path is very clear. My relationships are really long. The agency understands it. You know, all of that really makes sense. On the scripted side, what I've done is I've just make my own opportunities. <laughs> like I'll take, you know, if any kind of opportunity opens itself or I see a story, I do it all directly through relationships that I have versus through the system, because I know that it's not, it's a really confusing answer, but I just get scrappy. You know, it's like, all right, I'm going to go ahead and write the script for X, Y, and Z. I'm going to show them, you know, how this works. It, it's, I've, I get asked a lot, how, how do you do both? How can I do both? And I think until the business shifts a little bit 
and people realize how smart all of us unscripted folks are. Um, <laughs> little will that it's uh, that it's a little bit harder, you know, because it is very very funny. You know, I think the first time I went to a writer's room and I expected it to be worlds away from what we had done, but actually, if you break a season and you have on a scripted show, you might have your board of 10 episodes and on the left-hand side, you have, you know, the characters and you're really working out what their arc is for the season. Well, you and I both know that that's also how a season of the Rachel Zoe project would start. Only you have some that are filled in. So you've still got 10 episodes. You've got the characters on the left, you know, and then you know that like there's so-and-so's wedding is this episode or the Paris. So you have a few boxes filled in. Paris fashion week. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So some of your boxes are filled in, but actually the process is not that different, except that as an unscripted producer, you have to, you're breaking story every single week, right? So then you make that plan. And then it turns out that the people who are going to get married got divorced or, you know, had broken off the engagement. So now you have to figure that out. So you're, so the idea, the ability to look from a, um, particularly like in a doc soap, the ability to really see where the story is headed is just innate in what it is that you're doing as an unscripted producer. But I think to people who don't necessarily watch it or understand that how the donuts are made, it doesn't seem relevant because it's like, well, you're just with a camera just following people around. So like, you don't know how to plan story. And it's like, <laughs> we have to plan is, story and yeah. then change story yeah. and make sure that it always ends. So I think that that to me was funny. And then I also would like to joke where it's like, you know, people get notes and you're like, well, imagine if, you, if when you got notes, you had to call the quote unquote character on the phone and see how they felt about them. Right. Which is, yeah. you know, like that you become, I think that I just find that what I love about unscripted people is we're just very flexible thinkers. You know, there's there, you have to be open to so many solutions if you're even going to dream of getting to the finish line. But what I hope for in the future, like I do like developing around, I really like as a writer developing around voices. Um, that's kind of, and that's also a little bit in contradiction with how most writing works, right? Because it should be like, you know, Angie Day, she's the voice of the generation because she does X, Y, and Z, you know, like people want to know exactly what your voice is when you are a screenwriter, you know, like what does she represent? And that's one of the more confusing things when you come up as unscripted, because my voice in a lot of ways is that I can channel and shape voices, which is really different. So I think that that different skill set is why when it comes to scripted for me, I really like co-creating with talent or around something that's real because I feel like that's actually the skill that I can bring to the table that is a little less common. I agree with you that the scripted world needs to give us a little bit more respect. I always say we're a little bit like (laughs) Rodney Dangerfield. You know, we get no respect, right? Yeah. Um, Because... I have a couple of editor friends who've made that transition. They literally bounce back and forth from mm-hmm. big scripted shows to the bachelorette seamlessly. And I think that content for lack of a better word is really just becoming content. When you look at series like yeah. the men who built America, there's dialogue, there's scripted dialogue and acting scenes in that where I, I just watched, I was joking. There's a pirate series on Netflix where there's full on scenes blended with interviews in it. I, I feel like the merging of the genres is becoming such that we kind of all just have to own that, um, you know, content is, is mixing and we all just need to respect the creativity of each other rather than pit each other against one another. 
And as you know, there's so many celebrities, actors, athletes, directors who are now heavily involved in unscripted, be that documentaries, documentary series, or big formatted competition series, Ryan Reynolds, Mark Wahlberg, you know, I feel like there's, you know, it's time for us all to kind of just acknowledge that we're all good at what we do and let's all work together. But I also feel like sometimes unscripted people, and I've been guilty of this too, have a little chip on our shoulder. It's like, I also think we need to look around and, and, um, you know, respect what it is that we do. Like, I remember one of my, he was an amazing kind of mentor, uh, Arnold Shapiro, who did uh, Scared Straight in the 70s. And yeah, I he, worked with him. Bro- he was on Big Brother, right? Big Brother, yeah. And then he had, it was an anti-bullying series that we made at MTV called If You Really Knew Me. And at the time I was on an overall deal. So I was sort of assigned to the project. And, um, but he was a big fan. I wrote a novel called The Way to Somewhere ages ago. And he was a big fan of that book. And I remember one day he's like, but I don't understand, like if you could do that, because people hold that in this place of like high art. Like if you can do that, then why would you be doing this? You know, and he loved what he did too, but it was sort of, and I feel like I struggle with that a lot too. Like I used to joke that I had like the, um, the TV career of an unsuccessful novelist. Cause for a long time I was like one foot in and one foot out. Like I'm not really doing TV. I'm just doing it for the money, but I'm going to work on another book, which I did, you know, but I, I didn't like it. <laughs> I wrote after that. I'll, I'll write another one at some point, but anyway, but it was one of those things where I was always kind of had one foot out the door and it took me a long time to be like, wow, for like a committophobe, I sure have been putting a lot of time into television. And you know what? It turns out I love what I do. I love collaborating with people. I love this like super intense creative process, but it also um, ends, you know, like it airs. That's one of my jokes, my jokes. Uh, it's one of my favorite sayings when I'm running a show with everyone. Cause you know, there's, there's so much can go wrong there's you know dark nights of the soul there's terror you know the network hates it or whatever it is but i always like to say like you know what we'll make something because we always make something because there's an air date and it's got to get on there and i think that there's something about that pressure cooker that i really love but it took me a long time to like respect that about myself and i think the same can be said too it took me a while to realize like i love scripted television i hope to make more scripted television but i love unscripted television too and to me they are both really amazing and beautiful ways of of doing storytelling it's all storytelling and i think um there's so many different ways to tell a story and yeah i think that it's a little bit limiting to think of to put people in boxes too much but i think that right now that's kind of where we are i feel like it's shifting a little bit because content is changing so much so much is being made so many lines are being blurred um but I think for me, I just had to make the personal decision, which is like, I'm not going to try to fit anyone's box anymore. <laughs> like it doesn't work. I don't fit in the boxes. I'm going to make these choices for shows I want to do with the people I want to do them with. Right. I always say shows as good as the people you do them with too. I like to run a show where there's mutual respect, where, you know, it's like, you're not going to, I'm not, if someone says they're really difficult, but no, like, I don't, I have no interest in that. Um, because I think that we're at a point too where, respect for each other is so important. Also, like, this is where we spend our time. Like, who wants that kind of drama? Like, this should still, it should still be fun. Um, and I think it can be. And so that's kind of where I am. People I want to do it with, stories that I want to tell in places where I feel like people understand what it is that I do. And, the, you know, what comes next, you never really know in this business, but that's part of the fun of it, right? Free stuff is awesome. But free stuff to spice up your bedroom is even better. Of course, I'm talking about Adam and Eve. 
select almost any one item for 50% off, and then Adam and Eve loads on the free stuff. Enter office code BLEAVE at checkout and get 10 tantalizing free gifts. A sexy item for him, a special gift for her, and a third item you'll both enjoy. And six free spicy movies, plus free shipping. Use the offer code BLEAVE at checkout. That's B-L-E-A-V, and it's Adam and Eve. That's A-D-A-M-E-V-E dot com. People just went to the mat for this show behind the scenes. And I think one of the things that was so amazing, particularly given COVID, was that there's moments on shows we've all had them. You have a grand ambition. And then at a certain point, it's like, you know, like you get the first thing back, you get the first network notes or um, uh, whatever that is, where you're like, we're not going to be allowed to do what we want to do, or we somehow fell short. And what was so crazy about this show was that, you know, I felt like we were really unified in what it was that we we're making and we were able to do it. And when it finished, it wasn't like, oh, you know, it could have been this, but because of COVID, it's that. It's like, no, this is actually what we set out to make. And I think everyone kind of feels, it feels like a fever dream and it feels so improbable, but it's, it's, you know, one of the most rewarding professional experiences I've ever had because I know what it took. You know, there were certain directors, one director, every single shoot he did was remote for his episodes. There were 23 DPs on the series. Um, there were, you know, international. Really That's really tough. 23 yeah. different directors of photography mm-hmm. on one series. Yes. Wow. So that was the other thing we had to do too, which is like, let's, you know, we're going to find the best people in the places where we can go, but we're not going to limit it. We're not going to say, okay, here's like a very simple setup that anyone can execute all over the world. We're going to go for our ambitions. And then, you know, again, if if problems come up, we'll deal with it. But yeah, so it's just like, and then not to mention when you don't have a pilot, but, and you, and you're cutting, you know, the first five episodes at the same time. And everyone was so game where it'd be like, Oh, look at what Jeremiah is doing in his edit over here. And like passing that clip to another team so they could see that and not, not be like it, this is the format of the show, but kind of be inspired by it and build on it. So that by the time we had the first five episodes, we'd kind of found the language and it was taking a lot of the, what was working from five different teams. And the editors were unbelievable too. I think being an editor in the pandemic has got to be one of the hardest because you know, it's someone in a room with footage, but then you've got the distractions of everything around you. Like as a showrunner in a pandemic, the day comes to you, I find, you know, yes, there's times I need to break away and write or deal with budgets or deal with any number of things, but also it's kind of unfolding for you. You spend a lot of the day on the phone. It's like you have a whole day that like you didn't, you can't exactly explain what you did, but you know that (laughs) everything that you did was critical to like keeping it going versus, you know, just having to have the discipline of getting, a long focused day out while working at home. I mean, I'm just in awe of the editors that we had on this series too. And just the teams, the whole teams, the associate producers, producers on these very tiny teams making these shows and somehow everybody pulled it off, which is, and I really hope people watch it because it's just, it's fun. It's a good one. Um, And they're all really different. So whether you pick and choose which one seems most interesting to you or start from the beginning and work your way through, there's not a lot of science actually to the order. That, that they're in, I don't think. So uh, pick what interests you and take a look is what I'd say. Of the 10 scams, which sits with you as the most insidious or the most just like that, that you know, blew you away the most? I think that 
the episode of Scam with a Beat, which is about the scam rapper TJX6 and Yemisee Burks directed it. That's when I was talking about has kind of a surrealist take. That's the one that I think really blew me away the most because first of all, when you talk about a world, it was a world that I was really unfamiliar with. Like, I don't understand the dark web. That's not really my, you know, that's not really my strength there. Um, and I think the reasoning behind the scams, the way in which he's doing it, the way in which he plays with truth. I mean, it's a mind bending episode that other, it was really fun when all the directors finally got to watch each other's episodes. And that was one too, where the directors would be like, holy cow, that episode is, the editor was like, I can't believe the footage that I'm seeing. Because also what's really different with TJXX is he sort of owns his, he's not hedging at all. He's saying, yeah, this is what I do. This is why I do it, you know, which also we weren't expecting. You talk about a plan. That wasn't what we were expecting. But, but you know, um, everyone, everyone rolled with it. And so that one's really, that's one that I think is so of this time period. Um, but, but then something like the 23 Lives of Jeremy Wilson, which is, you know, a serial imposter who everybody loved, was charming, handsome, so smart. And he would just choose to con again and again and again when he could have, he probably could have stopped at any one of those identities and had a circle of people who adored him. And that to me is so strange as well. And then what's great about his too is sort of ultimately what brings him down is his, his confidence, right? Con man, confidence game. It's all the same thing. And, and it was his kind of his own ego that became his downfall because he thought he couldn't get caught. But there, but it is funny. It's rare when I work on something where I don't have like clear favorites. And that is totally the case with the series. They're each just their own weird little wormhole in the unscripted space we all work mm -hmm. with you know when you're in it long enough you work with some quirky if not oddball some nefarious characters from time to uh -huh. time <laughs> did you over the course of the 10 episodes do you feel like the people who were the con men or con women were had bad intentions I ask that because in watching the Hollywood con queen and the party's over the first two episodes, right? I was trying to wrap my head around, is this somebody who just wants to tear these lives apart or are they, did they get into it with good intentions and then it got out of control? And like that to me is, is, you know, as we look at what, what goes on nowadays, whether it's the fire festival, you know, whether it's Nexium or any of these things that kind of, really ruin lives. Is there mm -hmm. something good at the beginning and then it unravels or are these just bad people? I think that, you know, I, we refer to it as like, you know, the got in over your head episodes. People who say they got in over their head. Um, I actually think that more people are capable of making kind of very negative choices when under great distress than, than would like to admit. So I do think that there's, I think it's both in this case, but I think part of it is seeing what are the origins of it. So there, for example, with the Saudi prince and you hear from his brother who talks about his brother survived and you realize, wow, like pretending he was a prince was like his happy place. That was like the only place he could be happy because, you know, what he'd been through was so difficult. And so I think that, so I I think that that was one of the things that we really wanted to do with this series is kind of show, 
you know, you always want to balance between the victims and, and the con artists as well. But I think trying to understand why, like when you watch something like, you know, there's a lot of shows where it'd be like, tonight, the story of, you know, the man who pretended he was a prince for, that's not how, that's not the, that's not the series, right? Because we're kind of exploring how that comes to be. So an answer to your question, there are definitely some who I think got in over their head. There's some who will say they got in over their head, but you kind of have to wonder. And then there's some where I feel like it's so deep seated that, that who knows when that turn began, like one can only guess. But I think when you talk about like the water cooler of a show, like that's some of the stuff that I, that I would love for people to talk about, you know, when it's over, because I know that we as a team could still debate to the end. And I think that's when you kind of know that you're, you've made something compelling is when you can debate whether, for example, whether Ian Bick really meant to rip off his friends or whether he did get in over his head or what was he really doing there, you know? And I think the main thing we wanted to make sure was that, you know, like I spoke about the balance, like there, it's funny, but I feel like on most teams, there's always someone who's a really good litmus. And um, the line producer on this series named Laura McCune, who's amazing. Um, and she would watch episodes and she always had a lot of opinions, which I love. Cause I'm like, well, what, what do you think? And with her, she always had a really strong sense of like justice, like, oh man, he should not have gotten that much time or, oh, this guy got like way too hard. And that was a really good metric for me too, because sometimes uh, if you tilt it too far one way in the storytelling, then it seems like someone should not do, you know, a moment in jail when in fact there was other details or like maybe it means that the victims aren't present enough in the episode or things like that. So it's trying to get that balance. But, but I think the question that you're asking is sort of what I hope that viewers debate. That was a really long winded answer, but <laughs> that's, that's but it, my take. No, but that's a good answer because as a storyteller, you know, you should have a POV but you should also let the audience decide for themselves, right? Like you don't want to mm -hmm. tell them what to think. And I think you guys did a very good job of that because it obviously it left me, it left me thinking that. So, <laughs> yeah. But it is interesting though. I mean, obviously the way we're consuming is so different than it used to be. And having a series, you know, where you have 10 episodes coming out at the same time, that's a really, you know, that wouldn't have made sense a while ago. So it's, you know, there's so much happening but I think so much opportunity for different voices. And of course, like as a show creator, what you're hoping for is like the show that really breaks through. But it also is sort of where I've come kind of with my career. Cause it's very funny. You can, you know, like when you're hiring people on a show, someone could have a resume and you haven't heard of a single show on there. And it doesn't mean that they weren't good. Uh, it just means that you just didn't watch any of those because there's so much content. And I think, as long as I can keep making shows that I want to make, then I'm cool inside of this weird moment of transition for this business, you know, without question it is, but, but, um, but it's, it's kind of an exciting world to create in as well. I've done a lot of development as well and on kind of overall deals. And I love that where you're, you know, working with new concepts and, but when I always say like, if you, if you're doing a lot of development at the end of the, at the end of the year, like think of the end of the year as like a pie. At, a, at the end of the year, when you do development, 80% of that pie will have turned out to be spinning your wheels, things that didn't go, things you put a lot of time into that just never went anywhere that you pitched, got, you know, got to paper development, and, you know, the, like, not everything gets through, right? But I think the trick to being happy in development is as long as you don't know that you're spinning your wheels at the time you're spinning them, you can be totally happy in this space, meaning if you're going to work every day and you're like, oh, I have to work on this thing that no one's ever going to buy, 
you know, well, then you're going to hate your career. And I, that's kind of how I feel about shows as well. It's like, you want to take part in shows that you want to take part in. And I've, I've made choices that technically they don't make sense. And if you're trying to like, tell me as a linear story in terms of who I am and what I do, but to me, they're like, you know, each show is a huge part of my life. The people in it are huge parts of my life. And so it makes, it makes perfect sense to me. And I think that at the end of the day, particularly in, in an industry where there's so much content being made that that is kind of the most important thing, just as a, just as like a human being, you know, I mean, it's a crazy business. Agreed. And I will say that, (laughs) yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And I will say that the nice thing about right now is that there are things being sold or things being consumed that never would have been available five years ago or 10 years ago. I do think that there's more opportunity to tell stories in a longer form. I think that you know you're, you, you have opportunities to tell a very different type of story right now. And I think that's really good. I think that there were times in, in past where I would you know, whether I was talking to a colleague or I was, you know, talking to a, you know, an agent or whatever, and I would bring up a concept and it was like, oh, that'll never sell. And now I generally am like, if I'm excited about a project, I'll just, I'll develop it because, you know, there's probably a buyer out there that'll consider it. Right. Well, yeah. And I think I would, it was reminding me of, um, one of the other adages, but, but back in like when it was all linear, I very strongly believe the best time to pitch a show or the most exciting time was when you had a new creative head of the network because it didn't have wounds yet. Like every, every network executive has wounds, you know, like I went balls to the wall for the circus and it was the biggest flop ever. And like, don't anybody say the word circus in my office ever again, you know, like people have the wounds of things that didn't go well for them. So that was always, that was always my favorite time to make uh, television is if you were able to get a pitch in early with a new executive who wanted to take chances. And so you could get creative and it wasn't just like, oh, we don't do that or this no longer works or, oh no, we're doing whatever. And I feel like the whole industry is that way a little bit right now. It feels a little bit like no one's kind of, there's no grand vision because everyone's having to, to, everyone's getting scrappy. And I feel like that opens up so much creative space for people. Because if you're not at this point, like, you got to go big. There's just no point to try to make something like that has been done before. And I think that that to me is what's so exciting is like, how do you make things that really break through? And, and I think inherent in that is how do you experiment with this like genre of storytelling um, so that it actually lands somewhere or, you know, flops, but Hey, at least you went out and you did something that, that you really believed in and took some really big swings because big swings are where the fun is. Exactly. That's a good place to talk about. Uh, we just had the Oscars. My Octopus Teacher won the mm-hmm. Oscar for Best Documentary. Um, I know that you you have not seen it yet, so you should definitely see it. But um, it was a phenomenal uh, film. And to your point about big swings, I think that's a perfect example of, you know, you spend a year following an octopus. <laughs> like that's that's bold and that's gutsy to, to take a swing at that. And I know you liked, uh, you, you really liked Crip Camp. I loved Crip Camp. I thought it was a great movie. And my octopus teacher has to do with the family right now. I keep wanting to watch it and no one's in the mood. And I was like, we gotta watch. so I'm, I'm at the point where I'm going to watch that one alone. But yeah, Crip Camp, I thought was really amazing. I volunteered at a camp 
for kids with muscular dystrophy when I was in high school, which was super formative in my life. And to watch that and actually see the legacy and what, you know, what that brought about, I just thought was really amazing. And I do think right now we're at a really amazing time for documentaries, not only because they're people can make them, you know, you don't have to have as much money to make them now as you used to need. Um, the barriers aren't quite as high. Um, but also there's just so much room for people to discover these kind of movies because as much as Crip Camp is, you know, somewhat political and then you have My Octopus Teacher, which is about this singular relationship, but they're both really about, you know, they're both about important issues, about connection, human connection, seeing, you know, seeing people or our planet, you know, and respecting that. And I think that, um, I don't know, I just think it's kind of beautiful that all these documentaries are, are finding their way out. It was really great to see that yesterday. And then when my activist teacher won, I was like, dang it, <laughs> I got to see that. So you can talk to me in a week, but I'm sure, I am sure that I will love that one. There's no question in my mind. I usually end the, the episode with what to watch. Obviously we know what to watch. Got to watch Generation Hustle. Generation um, Hustle. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I would recommend. <laughs> yeah, of course. I think the one I would recommend that, that people need to watch is Exterminate All the Brutes. It is on HBO or now it's streaming on HBO Max, but I, they did not release all of the episodes uh, at the same time like they did with uh, Generation Hustle. So this is uh, by Raul Peck, who did I Am Not Your Negro. Um, mm -hmm. And it is, you know, it also blends, you know, I was talking about uh, Men Who Built America. This blends that kind of acting with the voiceover. So it's, it has a very distinct style, very much a look, look at racism. It's a look at colonization, genocide. It's definitely not, if, if you want to like have a relaxing night, not the documentary um, that you want to watch. But if you really want to dig into kind of historic uh, look at how we got to where we are as a country, the kind of struggles that we're having. Um, this is the this is the one to do. It's four parts, hybrid docu-series um, on HBO. Uh, it definitely digs into some of the serious topics that are affecting our country. And um, yeah, it, it's pretty, pretty powerful. Well, I would say in addition to Generation Hustle, uh, in honor of the win for Nomadland, which is a really amazing movie, but but going back and watching the writer, I don't know if you've seen her first, uh, that was her first movie, the first movie of hers that I had seen. Um, and when we talk about, you know, the skills of documentary and scripted combining, like that to me is a really beautiful example of that. I have not seen any of Chloe's other movies, but at times watching No Man Land, I thought I was watching a documentary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, watch the writer. It's about a um, bull rider who gets injured, but she cast a real person and his real sister. Um, it's beautifully told. I mean, she's amazing. But that, I think that that, if you want to think about the utopia of combined abilities, I think that that's a really incredible example of it. She's such a strong, strong director. It's just really cool to see. Angie yeah. Day. Thank you so much for doing the show. I know you're super busy, so I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's going to do it for another episode of No Script, No Problem. For everybody listening, please remember, subscribe, download, and rate the show with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. 
You can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. Follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. You can also email any questions that you have to no script, no problem podcast at gmail.com. Now, if you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.